Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief. I'm John Severs, Commissioning Editor at TES, and as usual, I'm joined by Gronya Hallahan. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hello. So let's get started. Gronya, you're going to start this week with um, an epic feature. I mean, it's a huge piece of work by Zofia. Um, do you want to tell us what it was all about and, you know, why now as well? Why is this such a crucial issue now? So Zofia's piece looks through the issue of slipping through the net. Students who, for different reasons, aren't, aren't managed to be caught by the agencies and by the external bodies that schools liaise with to give them the support they need. We're talking about students who need mental health support, students who need um, interventions from different agencies. And what's happening at the moment is that because of lots of different disruptions and things being put on hold, students just aren't getting the help they need. Part of the problem that Sophia mentions is about meeting thresholds and how different agencies have different thresholds and teachers will recognise this as being one of the big problems when they're trying to get the help that their students need. But there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel because there's different projects that people are doing that are trying to solve and resolve this issue. And Zofia goes through how they work and the different different ideas that people are coming up with to try and get people to work more cohesively and to ensure that those students don't slip through the net. It's just, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, she starts with a fictitious student, but you know, this is a student every school will recognise, and just how many different agencies they touch on. I mean, a child who has mental health issues, send issues, and uh, perhaps some some degree of truancy is going to come into contact with CAMS, with the NHS, with different um, send intervention panels, with the police, with occupational health, and just listing that you can see the complexity of bringing all those people together but what Zoff does a really good job of doing is saying actually the school because the the child is in the school the school becomes de facto hub of those services and that's a real problem as she points out because you know teachers are quite busy already (laughs) so (laughs) trying to coordinate multi-agencies who all have as you say different thresholds and who all have the similar pressures to education you know there's not enough staff there's not enough money and there's not enough um, time, essentially. And there's some stark comments from a, someone from CAMS who says that some of these agencies were trying to shift the student to other agencies. That's not quite right for us. Can't the police take it? Or, oh, they're not reaching quite uh, occupational health intervention. Maybe they should go over to CAMS. And it's this acknowledgement that they're so busy that actually these child, children are being passed around different agencies and it's it's quite bleak Mm. and i think i mean i picked this piece to talk about because i've got lots of friends that work in in cams and when i was speaking to them about this piece they recognized the the issues that zofia was writing about and it that that problem of being the pressure to push people and to discharge them is incredible and the pushing it back to schools all the time and the schools can't take so much and it's it really is it's, it's, it's a really tricky problem and it's one that's not going away but something I thought was really nice was when Sophia was writing about the the projects and how how well they were doing something that um one of the one of the comments was that they had these at the photocopier moments where when you put the agencies into schools as one of the solutions that they looked at they're actually in the hub they can hear they can get the intervention started so much earlier because they're seeing what teachers see before it before it gets too bad yeah and i think the 
the interesting thing about the feature as well is it it, it looks at it not from a school-centered perspective so schools can see the problem from their side you know this child's not getting intervention but they don't necessarily know why and it really opens out why there's these problems you know and and how sometimes unfortunately the school is part of the problem you know there's a there's a bit where a physio talks about trying to get hold of someone in a school and not trying to and keep missing that person because they're both busy you know physios in clinic the teachers in lessons eventually they eventually um they, they have the discussion it turns out that's the wrong person to have the discussion with and actually you're six weeks down the road and that child has not had that intervention for six weeks and it's just you know as, as you say Zofia does go into the solutions but the solutions themselves are quite complex yeah I mean this piece does show that that doesn't it particularly like you said that how you interact with one another as agencies and how hard that is to coordinate and that like you, you can lose so much time through no one's fault necessarily but just like trying to overcome that and trying to sort of get that that first bit sorted could make life so much better but you know how do you do that and how do you get the school like you say on teachers time workloads and so forth is, is not easy but the, i like that there were some interesting ideas put forward uh, about how you can do that and i think that's the main thing isn't it is you just got to keep finding ways to make it a bit better because even yeah shaving a week off that time loss is it's a week gained you know or if you can have a better court network of you know how do you meet you meet up once a month in a group and talk about everything together at the same place and that's like sacrosanct in the diary you know everyone attends that meeting or something like if you can do something like that that would be a step forward yeah i really like the co-location idea that she she wrote about that was one that i thought i could see really working and being adopted and teachers welcoming into schools did you think though i mean i saw you know ed ed vanker's an incredibly inspiring head teacher at reach felton and for his context the way he laid that out was so perfect and he has the room if you like <laughs> and the resource I'm just thinking in some of these schools, inviting these services in would be overkill in some schools. And also in other schools, is there the room and the capacity? And I think there's a point made about, you know, if you do locate services within schools, you know, how does that work? Does one school become a hub for the, the schools around? And if so, is it still as effective in that, in that way? I think it's, 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 I can see it really, you know, really working well in, in, in disadvantaged communities in the right schools with the right space. But I think it's tricky because then what happens if that school lifts out of, of that catchment? You know, what if the catchment is itself gets gentrified and the, 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 the need for that resource changes? How do you then relocate the resource or do you? It's, it's, mm. it's just the complexity is huge, I think. Yeah, size of schools is a, is a big problem with it because... Of course, we think of schools being like primaries being like a three, four entry or a two, four entry school, but lots of schools don't operate like that. And they're, they're very, very small and it, it, it wouldn't work there. So what, what happens there? So, yes, it, it is, it's troubling. But I think one of the things that Zoff wrote about, about this idea of making sure we're looking after people from start to finish, from cradle right from, to graduation, like all the way through, yeah. and that sort of... Um, caring for someone right from the beginning to the end and not having lots of changeovers and not having loads of different referrals and having trying to keep it more central that's that's something I think really appeals and sounds like it would solve a lot of the problems because much of the issues that we have with with students who have difficulties like this is the fact they're always being passed from one person to another to another and you don't get that relationship developing and you don't you don't have it doesn't become it's not effective because you've got to deal with having so many changeovers all the time i think the um u.s example she ends with is interesting because they said hang on we've got multiple multiple agencies all trying to find a different outcome for this child well let's agree a joint outcome 
this child will do x you know if this child is healthy or this child is in a happy place this this is what it looks like mm. who's got the resource to get them there and i think that's an interesting flip to the to the model not firefighting but actually saying well here's the end point who's got the resource to get them to that oh it's a bit of that that and it's it changes the conversation which i thought was very interesting yeah i mean you've got to obviously put the the outcome of the child really has to still be the top thing doesn't it and you you probably like say if you're a different agency you're going to have a slightly different how you measure an outcome success maybe and you know but that doesn't really help anyone because you've got to yeah coordinate better and work together better and realize that actually you kind of do have the same fundamental outcome in mind um but yeah it's, it's such a difficult one isn't it because you'd feel like you, you it sort of feels like it seems unbelievable that we don't have better systems for this of all the things as a society we should have but we don't right now but clearly there's work going on to improve it yeah so i think if you you know <clears throat> anyone in the school this feature would be relevant for and and it really does give you the problems in a stark way but also offer some some light as Gronya said so um yes settle in for 3500 words of, of some really detailed investigative work okay feature two we're going to look at um i don't think it needs any introduction actually that i'm going to give you give it straight over to you because i'm intrigued as to how you frame this one well, this is a piece by um, Gemma Corby, and um, it talks about toilets, basically. There's no other way to put it. Um, it has an excellent pun headline or in the magazine, which I won't, I won't give away because I think it deserves, you know, reading. In the Mark Hibbert Foy wrote that uh, headline, one of our sub-editors, and big shout out to Mark, I think, for that. Yeah, it's an, it's an excellent headline. It's, it's worth, um, worth the entry price to the magazine alone for that. But it basically <laughs> talks about how, <clears throat> excuse me, it talks about how, the loos in your school are part of the school. And if, and, and if they are left to go to rack and ruin and they're disgusting and not pleasant at all, then that sends a message about your school and it's what your pupils will think of their school and it's not good for their well-being, obviously, but also, which, which I think is, a, that's obviously an important point, health and hygiene is obviously a core thing here. But I just thought it was interesting, particularly talking about what it represents of how you treat your school. And if you have the pride, great pride over your flower beds and the arrival mm. where parents will see, that's great. But if you then let the lose become this horrible no-go zone that pupils are forced to sort of, you know, navigate every day, it's like, well, then all the good stuff that you're doing out the front is kind of for, not for naught, but it, it's very much undermined. And um, there's even an academic who's done a, did some research on, uh, who wrote a, a paper called Toilets Unblocked, a literature review of school toilets. Which, um, I must on. track down yeah. and, and read in detail because I just thought, wow, that's, you know, it shows us all, everything in schools is, is interesting, isn't it? There's nothing that isn't worth delving into and then, Sort of working out, and um, I think you'd hope a lot of teachers would read this and think, "Oh, yeah, our school is actually okay. We do keep them up, you know, up to spec, really." And bearing the odd, you know, mishap, they're fine. But maybe there's some aren't. And I remember thinking my school is actually. You know, I went to quite a reasonably good school, and the loos were pretty basic. You know, they weren't. I mean, not that they should have been pleasure. You know, pl- um, not that they should have been plush and lovely, but they were a bit basic. You wanted those Japanese toilets, didn't you? That, that <laughs> yeah. computer boards next to them. That would have been um, good. Yeah. I think, you know, as Gemma says in the piece, he says all teachers think the school loses. Yeah, it can't be that bad. But how often do they go into it? Mm. This pupil lose and see the horrendous day. I cleaned my school uh, when I was in sixth form. I was a school cleaner and I had to clean them. And they were horrendous. They were just, it didn't inspire you to look after them, to be honest. You know, there's a description in the, in the piece of, you know, the, the puddles of liquid on the floor of the lino with the ripped lino and the mold along the top of the sinks and the frosted windows with cracks in them with the mm. 
you know arctic air flowing in and you think what yeah that's that's you know that's not a nice place is it really no but when i read that i thought oh Gemma must have gone to my school because i just <laughs> immediately thought that's that's my school but um yeah exactly it's a universal think, it seems did you recognize i mean she, she makes a distinction at the start which i thought was quite a, a vivid imagery of the, the difference between the male and female toilets and you know the male toilets she just thanked god that she didn't have to go in them and the female toilets with this smell of impulse body spray and cigarettes is that does that take you back Gronya? oh our toilets were revolting at school like they were really grim they, none of the doors i think one door locked and i remember that was the second one in from the end because that was the one i would always try and use but otherwise you had to bring your friend in with you to hold the door shut you know oh people make god. jokes about women going to toilets in twos as a young girl, I thought, well, obviously you do. Who's going to hold the door for you? Like, that's standard. Of course you go in pairs. Um, or you try and get your rec- record bags. Obviously, it was bags that we all had when we went to school. Propped against the, the door to try and keep it shut whilst you went to the toilet. Um, but, yeah, toilets are pretty disgusting. My first school, um, the, there was a problem with girls kissing the mirrors. Why? With lipstick on. So, we'd apply lipstick and then kiss the mirrors. And the mirrors oh, like in the movies. And then um, the mirrors are obviously a nightmare to clean for the cleaners because you've got to get all the, the greasy lipstick off. So the head of pastoral brought in the girls that she believed were the offend- main offenders for this. And she said, just so you know, this is how we clean the mirrors. This is what we've got to do. She keep you're kissing the mirrors. And the cleaner got the mop, put it down the toilet, uh. then went to the mirror and then pretended to wash it with the toilet water. And all the girls were just, oh! This is dreadful. This is disgusting, and they, they it stopped it. Well, that's the interesting thing about the piece, isn't it? Because it says, you know, the as you said, Dan, the, the toilet being in a horrible state is just not inconvenient. It, it does impact learning, and it means that schools feel you know, children feel less cared for and less bothered with, and that has an impact on their relationship with the school and the impact on learning. But the counter argument to that is, well, if we make them nice, the kids will just trash them. And there's a, a quote in the piece from a teacher who says, well, actually, we we teach school rules that include toilets. We teach toilet etiquette. You know, you want to keep these clean? We'll keep them clean for you, but you have to, you're part of the bargain. And he said, having that explicit routine and, and rules around caring for the toilets, actually the kids did look after them. And it was something that they took, not pride in, you don't take pride in the toilet, obviously, but something that they did look after. Well, think- you say that, but I mean, t- yeah, why not take pride in it? Because it's, it's like, it's, a, it's a, f- a funny thing to talk about, isn't it? Because it's like the human body and it's something we don't really talk about in polite society. But we all use those. Why wouldn't we want them to be nice? And actually, it made me think like, again, I don't think schools should be having to do this, but unfortunately in the world we live in, even in 2020, people treat loos, public loos, terribly, don't they? I mean, train station loos are revolting. I mean, they're horrendous. I don't, and, and you wonder like, well, who did that? Who left that like that? How, who could do that? So if, maybe if we did start teaching children from a young age, like loos are an important part of life and we, let's make them nice for everyone. Maybe it will start to filter in 30 years time. We'll all go into train stations and loos will be, you know, whether aren't already cleaners doing a good job, they will be, better looked after because the society would have realized like we don't need to have everything in a filthy rundown state but i, I appreciate teachers listening might be thinking blinking eh? i've got to teach toilet <laughs> cleanliness now as well which i'm not saying but you know it's it all starts at school right and i think you're right it's it's getting over the taboo i mean you know we've broken every taboo in the world but it seems to be still a taboo to talk about toilets people are still a bit uncomfortable talking about a toilet and a bit uncomfortable about what goes on in a toilet even though everyone does it so it's it's and as it as the piece always says that also says there's a lot of 
health issues around those mentalities people holding on is not just an inconvenience and a bit irritating there's some quite serious health issues that happen holding on you know for even an hour could be quite damaging as most teachers know i mean amy forrester wrote us a piece yesterday about um pastoral teams saying you know if you see one of the pastoral teams can you just give them a break so they can have a wee i mean (laughs) it's it's this taboo that seems to be really problematic and i think if you get over the taboo then we can start talking about you know why we need to keep these toilets in a good nick yeah well there you go toilets fascinating feature worth (laughs) definitely worth a read yeah and i'll just add a shout out to alan who was our caretaker when i was a cleaner and one day i went this is an anecdote strap yourself in um we used to clean the maths block and i used to get really upset with the teachers because they used to move the desks in a way that was really annoying to hoover so i used to put them always in rows so i could hoover them properly and next day i'd come in and there were horseshoes or groups again and you know it was horrendous anyway i went into the toilets and the toilet floor was about an inch in water and i was like oh no what's happened put my head in paddled through because you know it was my job and the toilet was just full of tissue right to the top and i was like i don't even know where to begin so i I, I got alan down and alan said what's the problem and i said oh alan you know the toilet's just blocked right up the top and he went okay he walked in he rolled his sleeve up to the top of his arm he pushed his arm through and took the whole lot out in one go and it was one of the most impressive things i've ever seen in my life <laughs> i was in awe i was 17 and it it, it was just alan if you're out there and I, I don't think you're going to be listening but what a man that man was and um that's my anecdote so we'll move on okay so feature free i'm going to do something ambitious i'm going to uh, give myself some difficulty by talking about two features at once. Um, What links these two features in the magazine is student motivation. Um, The first is a growth mindset column, which is our column where we teachers talk about things that they used to do that they really regret. And they've they've grown and they've recovered from that. And it's Nikki Cunningham-Smith talking about uh, how she used to try and bribe students for good behavior, you know, just, just, just finish your book and I'll, I'll bake you some cakes on Friday. Or, you know, can you just, give me this lesson, give me an hour and be quiet. And you know, you can go to the front of the lunch queue on Friday and you know, everything will be fine. And she just said, yes, you got some short term value in that. And what, what she was trying to do was create some motivation, but really it wasn't motivating the students to learn. It was motivating the students to get some cake on Friday. That was quite short lived and didn't change habits. The other feature looks at it from a different way, which is um, a feature from John Morgan looking at desirable difficulties. And you know, for the past, what, four or five years, we have done so much about retrieval practice, about space practice, about interleaving. And all these things are about creating a degree of difficulty in learning so that you learn better. And it looks at, you know, the guy in the, in the piece who's done all this research, he says, um, this is not fun. This is not motivating to do this. The kids get, you know, bored or they get this demotivated because they're getting stuff wrong but actually it's learning so on one hand you've got nikki saying you know i'm trying to bribe these kids to do better and uh, on the other side you've got john's feature where it's about okay if you create desirable difficulties if you make it harder then they will learn more but it's really demotivating and i think pupil motivation is such an underdeveloped area and it's try people try and simplify it all the time you know oh if they're successful that means they'll be motivated to learn well it doesn't actually at all. I mean, it, it can motivate some students if you're engaged, if you have nothing else on your mind. Um, 
cognitive load theory basically just ignores motivation as a factor in the theory you know why you'd want to do something there's all this stuff at the moment where student motivation is sort of sidelined or simplified and i think these two features sum it up just how difficult it is because on the one hand nikki's going do you know what if we want to intrinsically motivate students it's hard you know we can't underestimate how hard that is and in the other piece about desirable difficulties the leading academic in this area says do you know what you know you can't just this, this, this is not fun. Kids are not going to like this. It's the best way to learn, but actually you need to do this and other stuff. He, said, he describes desirable difficulties and retrieval practice and interleaving as a drop in the ocean of how a child should be educated. And reading some of the stuff we get in, you'd believe that it was the entirety of education. And what he's missing, what um, I spoke to John Hattie for a podcast, what he says is this beautiful pupil motivation factor is huge. It's just a huge area and you can't simplify it. And so I think if you read the two in tandem, you can begin to try and unpick it. But I'm going to throw it out to you two. I mean, how do you think pupil motivation works? How do you think um, we can motivate a pupil? Because I think it's probably individual, but you can come back at me on that as well. I think pupil motivation, I I struggled with trying to understand why some pupils weren't motivated to learn. I think being really honest is because I was always quite motivated to learn in subjects that I liked. And when I wasn't motivated to learn nothing, I don't think anything could have, could have motivated me to learn it. So when you're trying to put yourself in the mind of a student, you're sort of desperately scrambling around like what, what might make them work? I know maybe like that's, cake maybe if i promise i'll make them a cake or we'll have a party or we'll have this reward at the end you can see why your mind goes to those things because if you yourself are naturally motivated and naturally motivated person then how do you understand somebody who's not motivated and if you think back to yourself when you haven't been motivated what would motivated you the truth is it's really difficult to motivate people and not one thing works for everybody and i think that's why we sometimes reach for these easy this will motivate all of my learners if I do this one th- like gimmicky thing and it, it really does. Yeah, I was thinking about this as well and I was going to think, why, why was I motivated at school or if I wasn't, why wasn't? And I honestly couldn't think of a good answer because there was no sort of inherent bribery going on. Um, and often the, 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 you, know, the, you get the reward idea, but there's the threat idea as well, isn't there, that um, if you don't revise, you won't do well in your exams, you won't have a good career. But that's such a sort of unknowing unknown sort of thing you that pupils you know how can you possibly sort of conceive the idea of exams in a career and a future in a house and a mortgage when you're 16 or whatever or even you're 13 so it's very hard to i say the motivation of every pupil is different some might want to please their parents some might want to please the teacher some might be very driven some might know they're never going to become a biologist and just never be motivated by biology lessons and i don't think there's an i mean i don't say there's not an answer because there must be answers but is there one or two that then you apply to every class everywhere and all children sit attentively and want to do that subject? It almost certainly isn't because it goes to the same thing as humans, isn't it? There's loads of studies that have shown that offering more money doesn't motivate people after a certain point. Like there's a point at which it works and then it just falls away and people aren't more motivated or they become less motivated or something like that. And I can't remember the details of these studies, but I've definitely read things to that effect. And it's true, isn't it, as a human? You know, you, you doesn't matter as an adult, sorry, as a human, as an adult, you do... Um, there's a point at which we all just lose interest in something. Even if we love that thing, we, we, at a certain point, we lose it. And you have to sort of stop and leave it for a bit and come back to it or whatever else it might be. But I think it's just a, a fundamental human issue. And some incentives can actually 
demotivate you and and make you less likely to do it because you feel patronized by the incentive mm. like there's yeah. there's a lot of lots of studies that I've, I've read about that and i think that you can you can make people feel as if you don't really believe in them or you think that they're you make them feel as if you think they're lazy and if they think you think they're lazy they're definitely not going to do it mm. I think I think it comes down to culture again, doesn't it? That that idea of like you're absolutely right. I worked in workplaces where they offer a reward for something, and it, it's actually you think, and you don't want to be mean because okay, they, they're trying to think of you. Just think, oh, that's a bit yeah, exactly that patronising. That's a bit oh, you know why do they, well why not recognise when we actually do our job well you know rather than when we all when you have a sick day for fifty days or whatever. I made that up, but it's something like you know it's like why not actually come over and say oh, I really like that thing you did yesterday or that you know that interview I, I read you did know, like whatever. That would be motivating, not a reward that's kind of like a bit like cheesy and a bit gimmicky. The attendance one is a really good example, actually, because if you reward attendance and you have 100 percent attendance, you're more likely to be absent the following like term Mm. because you feel like, well, I got got my attendance one last time. I'm owed a day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm owed a day. I just think about. I just, as you're talking, I was just thinking about my A-levels and what motivated me in each subject. My history A-level was definitely my teacher. I didn't want to let my teacher down. And that, I, I wasn't that interested. I thought I was interested in history. I subsequently went to university to study history and found it horrendously boring. And um, so, so quit. But it was, it was all about Mr. Bailey. It was like he was my motivation. In maths, I was just so scared of the teacher, even at the age of 16, 17. She was called, at the time, she was called Miss Burns. And my very clever uh, friend, Chris Wormsley, quipped, she does, doesn't she? Because um, <laughs> he's a very clever man. But um, it, my motivation there was fear. And then in music, I just loved it. And so my motivation was, was that I, I really had a deep love of doing music. And so my motivation in each of those lessons was different. And in English as well, sorry. Like English, I just loved analysing text and writing. And so in each lesson, my motivation was different. And if you'd have tried... A gimmick in my music class it would have been completely unnecessary if you'd have tried the gimmick in in miss burns class I, it might have worked but i was so scared of her, i probably wouldn't have noticed mm-hmm. and and in mr bailey's i'd have just been really disappointed in him <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. you know he's yeah, think- that kind of guy if you think about subjects that you did then for gcc or that you didn't even pick for gcc the ones that you did that were option subjects before that i'm trying to think of what i hated pe at school i never i i must have done maybe 20% of my total PE lessons because I either didn't bring my kit in or I just used to go and hide and not do it. And um, nothing, I don't think anything could have motivated me to do PE when I was at school. But nothing, there, couldn't, there, there wouldn't be a gimmick or an incentive in the world that would, would change my mind or would make me do it. Mm. Which is, it, I mean, you, you skip in the class, I can't condone, but you can understand that, you know, not everyone likes everything so why would you want to do something you don't inherently like once you get past a certain age you don't have to do those things anymore obviously when you're at school you do have to do them but really. it's stupid because now like i'll pay and run a race like and I, <laughs> I do i do workouts every uh, week. But I that's... The netball team but when i was at school i hated it so much and it was so much part of like who i was like oh that's grania she doesn't do pe like i don't but that's is that, is that not okay is that not just that's human evolution and changing I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Like when we talk about motivating, motivating people and what motivates you, I don't know what you could have done differently that would have made me motivated to do PE. 
Yeah, I think that's the key, though, isn't it? It's that sometimes we love something so much that we can't understand why someone else wouldn't. And that you get a lot of subject specialists like that, like history is fascinating or English is fascinating. Unfortunately, it's not for everybody. And no matter how much achievement, I mean, I was pretty good at maths. I was successful. But was I motivated? Not really, because I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't creative enough for me at that point. And I'm not saying maths isn't creative because it can be, but my my A-level mechanics was not creative. Um, so I, I do think that's true, is that we sometimes assume motivation when actually it's a lot more complex. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? Because I was going to say, sometimes you need people to not be motivated by, motivated by some subjects, because if every pupil was motivated by every subject, it, wouldn't it become a bit like, that would just be almost, you need people to have different levels of things. So society then has people who go into different spheres yeah. of work to different skill sets. We need mathematicians, we need English teachers, and we need, you know, submarine captains. And if everyone was motivated by everything, well, how would they ever pick a career path? And I think as long as pupils aren't disruptive and they're participating in the class and they're enjoying themselves, even if they're not massively motivated by it, then you can't, you can't have everybody really enjoying every single subject. That's not realistic, is it? Mm. There you go. That's an interesting place to end. If you if you believe that motivation should be universal and Dan is wrong, please get in touch with us on Twitter. And if, if you'd like us to discuss any other issues, get in touch with us too. Um, and then next week we'll be back and we'll be talking about the longest term, um, you know, teaching during the past three months, which has been, you know, deeply, deeply challenging. But um, Chris Parr has written a, a lovely feature about, you know, the positives teachers have taken out of it. Because, you know, if you want a positive take on something, then usually go to a teacher. They'll find they'll find a chink of positivity. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.